Lord, even in this moment, we just ask God that you would arrest our hearts to see who you truly are, as glorious as you are, as magnificent as you are, Jesus. Holy Spirit, awaken us to your beauty today. Awaken us to your glory at work amongst us and within us. Awaken us, God, so that we could see you and be in awe of who you are. Lord, I just ask for those of us who are hungry, you see their hearts, you see their desire to just marvel in your presence and who you are. Maybe some of us have encountered you in a very personal and and life-changing way, in a way that really overwhelmed us and we were left in awe. But that was some time ago and we are desiring, we are hungering for that, God. Lord, I ask that you would awaken us to that again. As we come to your word, God, as we, as we listen to your voice, awaken us to your beauty, to your love for us. So that these just don't become just words and text, but they become alive in our hearts. They begin to work in us in ways that will transform us beyond our imagination, God. I ask for your spirit to be at work today. Do only what you can do, Holy Spirit. Only you can open the eyes of the blind. And so we ask that miracle to happen through your word and even as we continue to fellowship in worship today as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. All right, I'm just going to take a moment. Good morning. We are heading back into our study of the book of Samuel. Uh, it seems like it's a never-ending study. Uh, it is a long book, and, um, but we're getting there. We are now in 2 Samuel, but before we get into it, particularly to those of you who uh, have not really been uh, engaged with our series or part of our life groups to be able to discuss it in an in-depth way, um, I'm going to highlight a, a couple of things that... Uh, we should be really aware of uh, in terms of where the storyline is going as we continue to make our way through the book. Firstly, uh, we are to look at First and Second Samuel uh, as one whole book, okay? Uh, so it was written to be one whole narrative, uh, not in two parts. And uh, scholars do speculate that the only reason why, uh, that one of the reasons why it may be in two parts is so that it could fit uh, on a scroll uh, in those days. And so they do speculate that, but they're not still uh, confident as to when that would have happened or how that decision would have come about. Uh, but it is a speculation. Nevertheless, uh, the point is that we are to read it as one continuous book, okay? 
Um, so it's not necessarily a part one or part two kind of series. Uh, and what we've gone through already is the first seven chapters of First Samuel is about a man named Samuel. He is a prophet and he is the last of the judges of Israel. In that time, it, so the, the beginning of the book, book begins with a historical account of Israel not yet having kings, okay? So they were under the leadership of judges. Now Samuel was the last of them. And the people of Israel turned to God, they repented to God uh, under Samuel's uh, judging or leadership. Uh, and what we saw was because they turned to God, God gave them victory over their longtime enemy, uh, who were the Philistines. And then the Israelites we see enjoyed this time of peace uh, under Samuel's lifetime as he led them in the ways of God. But then uh, we read it was time for Samuel to retire and the elders uh, demanded, the elders of Israel demanded for a change in government. So they asked for a king this time, not another judge, but a king like all the other nations. Now Samuel was not happy with this request. You see, the issue was not that the people had actually asked for a king. The idea that Israel would have a king was actually already uh, put forward centuries ago, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, where God, through Moses, was talking about the future of Israel, and that at some point he would appoint a king for them, and then he would outline what this king would need to do. So God was certainly not surprised by their request or by the idea that Israel would have a king. The issue, though, was that the people were asking for a king like all the other nations. Rather than following God's way for them, they preferred to follow the ways of the world around them. And so ultimately... Their request for a king was really a rejection of God's kingship over them. And so, as the story progresses from chapter 8 to the end of 1 Samuel, we then learn about the kingship of Saul, who was the first of the kings of Israel. Now, Saul was appointed by God, but he was appointed in response to Israel's demand for a king like all the other nations. Okay? So, yes, God did appoint Saul, but Saul was not the king that he wanted for Israel. It was the king that Israel wanted for Israel. And then we enter into the book of 2 Samuel, where we now learn about the second king. David. This time, David was chosen by God according to God's purpose for Israel. David was chosen as the king that God wanted for this nation. If we were to kind of briefly compare these two kings, what we see in the narrative is that 
Firstly, Saul does many things wrong as king of Israel. But ultimately, Saul's kingship failed because he did not repent. So he was guilty of many sins and disobedience. But ultimately, his decline and failure comes down to the fact that he never repented. Whereas on the other hand, David also does many things wrong. As we progress through the book, if you've never read it before, you may be even shocked to find some of the things that the Lord's anointed does. So he is guilty of many things. But unlike Saul, David repents. And so as we go through the book, as we study this book together, it's good to keep in mind these two major themes, kingship and the importance of repentance. And today we're also going to look at how these Old Testament narratives and stories really contribute to the overall biblical storyline, they, how they contribute to God's unfolding of his master plan for this world. You see, God has a plan for this world and he is working on it. He is unraveling it as history goes. And this was a point in history where God was at work unfolding that plan. A plan that we as his church are even a part of today. And so our text today is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. So turn with me if uh, you want to mark that in your, in your own Bibles. If not, uh, we can look here on the screen. David anointed king of Judah. We have finally reached to that part of the story where he is throned as a king. So verse 1 reads this, After this David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. If you've been following the narrative with us, this is, short, this is after uh, the town, the refuge town that they were in, Ziklag, was burned down. And they had been on that mission with the 600 men to rescue their wives, and now they were back, but the town that they were in was burned down. So um, hence why... David asked where he should go, and God instructed him to go to Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and they, were, they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you show this loyalty to Saul and your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, 
commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to, over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, gosh, that's a mouthful. Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here we see three things that happen in the narrative. The first is how David began his reign as a king. Number two, we see how David treated his enemies as a king. And number three, how David faced opposition as a king. If we really get back into the storyline and we find ourselves, um, David had spent 10 years, okay, about 10 years being hunted down in the wilderness. He was on the run. His life was in danger. Saul wanted him dead. And finally, after that time had ended, the long-awaited moment had arrived for him to take the throne. And during this time in the wilderness, David's kingship was being shaped by God. God was preparing him for the kingship um, by way of obedience and trust, by patient endurance, and by the refusal to take matters into his own hands. You see, if we contrast this journey that David has toward his kingship to what Saul experienced years earlier, Samuel had told Saul, as the Lord's anointed king over Israel, one thing was required of him above all else. So Saul had to meet this condition in order for his kingship to succeed. And that was to listen to the voice of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, because you are king, listen to the words of the Lord. But we see that Saul died at the hands of his enemies, at the hands of the Philistines, precisely because he did not obey the voice of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 28, 18, it's recorded, because you did not obey. You know, God is very clear. Uh, God often is very clear about commands and expectations. And, and so when we are seeking the will of God, when we read his word and we ask the spirit to enlighten us, to un help us understand, we will find that God is often very clear. Like he doesn't hide stuff from us. Like if you want to be near me, you've got to do some, like maybe I'll, 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 I'll draw near to you if you do this. Like God is not vague in his instructions. He is clear with his commands. And here he was clear that because Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out God's fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you today. Okay. And so we see this contrast. We see um, Saul decline and, and failure as a king because he disobeys God and he refuses to repent. But at the same time, 
we see David's ascension or rise as a king of Israel, which happens through the obedience of the word of God, which begins by the obedience of the word of God. And what we see here, as we again zoom out to the whole biblical narrative, we see that David's obedience here is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus' path to kingship, that the true king that God was going to send to us to deliver his people would uh, head towards his kingship through the path of perfect obedience to his father. That was what, what, what David's obedience here was foreshadowing in the greater scheme of things. And so with Saul no longer pursuing him and Ziklag being burned, David asks the Lord about the next step. He asks the Lord, God, what is my next step? You see, often when we experience time in the wilderness, it's a humbling time. Some of us, we don't understand why we go through seasons of hardship, but we often come out of it with greater humility and more humble dependence on God. Sometimes hardship can actually make us harder, like more stubborn. But more often when God is at work through our hardship, it makes us more humble. And so here we see this humble king whose character was shaped in years and years of being in the wilderness. And he asks the Lord, what is my next step? Maybe some of you are going through a season where you need to be asking the Lord, God, what is my next step? Remember that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a counselor, as a helper, as a comforter, that he is given to us to guide us, that God's word is also given to us to speak over our lives, to guide us when we don't know where to go. Maybe some of you have received news that you never expected would happen. And so suddenly you realize that God's plan was different to your plans. And you need to be asking now, God, what is the next step? What is my next step? You see, if we want to walk in the will of God, if we want to pursue God, we've got to humbly depend on his counsel. It's got to be part of our prayer life that we ask the Lord, God, what is my next step? As Israel's next king the one appointed by God to fulfill his purposes for his people, David asks the Lord, what is my next step? And the Lord instructs him to move to Hebron, the most important city of southern Judah. So David obeys and he takes his wives and he takes all the people, the men that were with him and their families, and he moves there. And there David is made king of Judah. Now, as I was studying this, we really can't look past the fact that David moved to the city called Hebron. If any of you are familiar even with the Genesis story and the account in Genesis, maybe this this place is familiar to you. Uh, Hebron is also mentioned in the Genesis story as the city of Abraham. 
Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah, they all ended up being buried at that place. And so it happens to be the only portion of the promised land that belongs to Abraham. And so David's move to Hebron is linking with the story of Abraham. It suggests that David's rise as king is the continuation of the story that began centuries ago when God made the promise to Abraham. What was the promise that God made? That he would bless all the families of the earth through him. If we take a step back and we really see the storyline of the Bible. You see, it's not just a compilation, like I said, of random stories. There is a storyline, God's story, unfolding, unraveling through the pages of this book. So if we took a step back, we see that the main storyline of the Bible is creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the story of creation. Uh, And then in Genesis 3, we have the story of the fall where human beings turn away from God and are exiled from his presence and the world falls into corruption. And then from Genesis 3 to chapter 11, we then see how things get worse and worse because of the corruption of sin and the impact of sin on God's creation. But then, suddenly, when you hit Genesis 12, the story takes a turn. God proactively enters into history by making a promise to one man. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I have chosen you. I am going to save the world through your family, through your descendants. I'm going to make you a great people. And from your offspring will come the true savior, will come the true king who will truly deliver his people and bring about redemption and restoration to God's creation. So David's kingship then is connected with this story of redemption that God had begun when he made that promise to Abraham. And it contributes to the overall storyline of God's salvation plan and his plan to renew and restore all things in this world. In fact, to not spoil too much, but later in chapter 7, we will see that God will appear to David and he will say that David, from your descendants, there will be one who reigns forever. From your family line, from your offspring, I will give the true king. And if any of you started reading the New Testament and skipped Matthew 1, you would probably skip the part where you see the connection between Abraham and David. Jesus was born in that family line. 
Jesus was born as an offspring of Abraham and a descendant of David. And he, of course, is the true king that God has promised to deliver the world, to bring complete redemption and restoration in this creation. So David becomes king of Israel as part of God's unfolding plan for the world. Through David's kingship, we see that salvation, God's salvation is being established. God is at work uh, delivering his people. And that God is also at work trying to form his people into a kingdom. Because before that, they were just a group of people, a group of tribes. But now God is at work transforming them into a kingdom, preparing them for the true king who will come and reign over them forever. And that is Jesus. The people of Judah then had, we see, had made David their king. Uh, but what we have to understand that is just because he was named king of Judah, it doesn't actually mean that he was named king of Israel. Okay, so... Historically, the Hebrew people were made out of 12 tribes. Again, going back to Abraham's story, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, had 12 sons, and they then became the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe would have then a strong, independent identity. The tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Benjamin, and so on. So it, the way to look at it is not, not necessarily like countries of one Great Britain, but more, more like the nation states that make up the European Union. Everybody is a separate uh, political entity and has its own identity as a tribe. But when outside forces got too much for them, what they would often do is work together. Okay, they would join forces um, to, and, and engage in battle together. And then after things quieted down, they would then revert back to their own identities as different tribes. Historically, what we see is the 11 northern tribes um, were sometimes grouped together as Israel. Okay, so that's why um, what we see there is a, a difference between Judah and Israel, but the large southern tribe Judah remained sort of on its own. It had its own individual identity. And actually that was the tribe that David belonged to. So at this stage, David is not yet king of Israel, but he is king of Judah. And we see it's a small beginning. He begins his reign in a small way. But if you've joined our, if you joined our fast at the start of the year, you would know that God tells us not to despise small beginnings. What we learn in the New Testament is that the kingdom of God grows from something as small as a mustard seed. And the kingdom of God spreads. The church of God spreads from 12 ordinary men. And so we learn from this story, David had a small beginning. But God was at work unfolding his big plan for him, the nation, and of course, the big story of redemption. And so us, we must learn not to despise small beginnings. Now we see David's first act as a king. Well, the act at least that was recorded. Here, the people of Hebron was saying to him, they, they, um, 
they told him that the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried Saul. Now, in the context, we've got to understand that Saul saw David as his enemy. But throughout the time that uh, David was in the wilderness and, and was pursued by Saul, he refused to see Saul as an enemy. It doesn't mean that that was not the case. Saul was certainly uh, an enemy of David. Uh, and Jabesh Gilead in particular was the first, was one of the towns that Saul had saved. If you read the, again the account of when Saul became king, he, one of the first things he did as king was save this town. Okay? So they had a loyalty towards Saul. They did not forget what Saul had done for them. And so it would be logical to assume then that because they were allies of Saul, that David would then, as a king, treat them as an enemy. But here we see the contrary. Instead of uh, punishing them or challenging them, uh, challenging them for battle uh, because they were kind to Saul, David commends them for their kindness. He commends them for their loyalty. And then he even prays. He takes that step further and prays that the Lord will bless them for their kindness and that he would reward them with his unfailing love. David's message as king, as the, the second king of Israel, was the message of grace. Grace and peace toward those who people would assume would be his enemy. As a king, we see that David is actually keen to heal the division of this land. He saw God's greater picture at work, God's greater plan at work. And again, we see as a king, his actions here point to Jesus as the true king who offers us grace to his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 11, he says, For while we were enemies of God, you and I, we were enemies of the cross. We rebelled against God at one point. We were enemies of God. By the death of his son, we were reconciled to him. You know, the word reconcile means that our status changed from being enemies to friends. God extends peace to his enemies. That is the message of grace. That is the message of our true king, the prince of peace is that you could be my enemy, but I will extend love and grace to you. For while you were still sinners, I died for you so that you could be friends of God. That is the message of our true king. So peace with God is not something that we achieve, but something that we receive by faith, by trusting in Christ Jesus. In what he has done. Now finally we're going to see the part where David's ascension to the throne was met with opposition. I'm going to ask the, the um, ministry team to come up as we, we go through this final part. We see Abner was a cousin of the late Saul. Okay, So he commanded Saul's army. Um, and he did not want David to be his king. And so he knew that the Lord had anointed David. He would have known that because he was well aware of the affairs that happened throughout Saul's lifetime uh, when he was pursuing David in the wilderness. He knew it, but he didn't want any of what God had planned. 
He couldn't care less about the kingdom of God. And so we see that as David is, is crowned as king, Abner then crowns Ishbosheth, one of um, Saul's sons, to be the king of the northern tribes of Israel. He was just the guy who had selfish ambition and would use anyone to get his way. But what was God's actual plan for David's kingship? Again, if we look at the overall biblical storyline, we see that God's plan was unite all of Israel under one king. You see, unity is a God idea. It's important to God. As we progress through the story, the narrative, we will see that David's kingship does unite all the tribes of Israel at one point, but this unity is short-lived. Because years later, after Solomon's death, which is David's son, so after say, uh, the, the death of David's son, what would happen is the kingdoms would be permanently split into two, into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And if we were to really trace back what happened in that division, we would see that the seed of division was, all, was planted when Abner raised another king instead of David for, to rule over the northern tribes of Israel. The term Israel after this division, after this permanent split, became ambiguous. It could mean either the people of God or just the northern tribes, but definitely not the tribe of Judah. And so, again, looking at the whole biblical narrative, we see that the people of Israel were a group of tribes. And then they asked for a king. And then God's plan to give them a king enters into history. And then we see a line of kings, some good, some not, many not. Um, and then we see a split in these na um, at the, as the, the nations are divided and we see the decline of Israel as a nation. And then God raises prophets. Now prophets in those times were, were uh, sent by God to be mouthpieces of God, to, to send messages of hope from God, to remind God's people that my story of redemption and restoration is still at play. Just because things look chaotic, I'm still at work behind the scenes, fulfilling my promise to save the world, to save creation. So after the division of the kingdom, what uh, these prophets would then start to prophesy about a Messiah, about a Messiah who would then make them one nation again. One of the prophets was Jeremiah in verse, chapter 3, verse 18. Jeremiah says, In those days the people of Judah will join the people of Israel and together they will come from a northern land to the land I, have, I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. God's people were going to be united, but that would happen only under their true king. We know as we read the end of 2 Samuel that no human king could ever properly accomplish the plan of God. But God was going to send one of him himself as the true king. 
And we know now on this side of the cross, we know now looking at what Jesus did is that God's purpose was to bring all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples after he resurrected from the dead, after his mission was completed, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. He is now the reigning king of this world, whether you accept him or not, because it's, it's very plausible that there is a king that we can reject. He is now the reigning king over, this, over his creation, bringing redemption and restoration to his people. And you see, in doing so, this master plan of God was to unite people of every nation and tongue into members of one family. One family. Every nation and tongue, people of all colors and backgrounds into one family into one body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about God's mysterious plan being revealed. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to talk about an excerpt from, a commentary from, um, from this guy named Francis Chan. But firstly, let me read it as it is. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles, some non-Jews, and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving Him by spreading this good news because Jesus has accomplished what He needed to do. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone, says Paul, this mysterious plan that God, the Creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose, here we go. God's purpose in all this was to use the what? was to use the church, the imperfect, the messy sometimes church to display His wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying here that the great mystery God is now revealing is that People of every nation and tongue becoming one, becoming united as His body because of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. God wanted to show the heavenly beings His incomparable wisdom, so He created the church. This is what Francis Chan says about this scripture in his book, Letters to the Church. This is the divine mystery that was hidden in God for ages. The grand reveal that heavenly authorities are anticipating has arrived. The curtain is drawn back and they gasp as they see the church. No way, this is unreal. Through the cross, 
people of every nation and tongue becoming members of one body? Amazing! God Himself is joining His creation and allowing them to be part of His body. Unbelievable! This was the plan all along. There was going to be, there was going to come a day when the Almighty God would dwell with the people of all races and they would be brought to complete unity, forming one temple which could be a dwelling place for God. You see, many of us today, maybe some of us here, treat church like an option, like a like a to-do list, like a checklist, something that we do. But we don't want to be part of the church Monday to Saturday. We just attend church, but we don't want to be part of the eternal plan that God has for His church to display His glorious wisdom to this world, the church. Some of us maybe have, have experienced this or know somebody where we would rather connect with God on our own. You know, it's easier not to deal with weird people, not to tolerate them. Not, uh, it's, maybe it's easier not to, to clash with them. But you see, God has a totally different perspective about the church. He sees it as His glorious plan. He sees you and I as part of His eternal plan to reach the world through this, the simple, imperfect church. You and I, we're not just church members. We're part of God's eternal plan. His eternal plan for redemption and restoration. Before Jesus went to the cross, He prayed, and I won't go through the prayer, but He prayed in John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23. He prayed that we would become one like God and the Father, like Him and His Father are one. You see, that's just not like, that's the kind of unity that is perfect. Now, I don't believe we could ever reach that kind of unity until we cross the other side of eternity. But I do believe that that's something we should aim for as a church. That's something we should be pursuing as a church. And you know what he says? What's the purpose of this unity? You know what's the reasoning behind it? That through this unity, people would believe in him. Now some of you may think, how does that, how does one plus one equal two in that equation? How does perfect unity in the church or unity in the church equal to more people being saved and more people seeing Jesus as Lord. If we read though in the accounts of the beginning of the church and how the church started, we see that that was the case. That it was through the unity of the church as they got united, as they shared life with each other, doesn't matter where they came from, what background, what socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what preferences they have, the kind of music that they listen to. But they would make the effort to walk in unity with them, to love them as they love themselves. And in that unity, more people were added to the church. People were being saved. People saw that this thing is real. Because this is not the kind of love that I see it at, in the world. This is not the kind of friendship that I experience from the world. That people can see that it's real. That Christ's love is real in our unity 
it doesn't make sense but that's what makes it a miracle that's what makes us witnesses to God's beauty would you please stand you see unity it doesn't come easily if any of you have uh, I think most of you here have grown up in a family uh, some of you here have experienced what it's like to to raise a family and you know that unity takes work if you enter into a marriage it's not shocking to realize that uh, unity is not natural that you have your own preferences your husband or a spouse has their own preferences and it requires work to be united and to realize that when when we are united we are better together I think those of us who have experienced marriage would only understand how much work is required to be united and those of us who have raised a family we know how much sacrifice it takes we know how much acts of service it takes we know how much uh, laying down of our desires and preferences it takes for the sake of another person how much understanding how much forgiveness how much grace it takes to be a family and yet God has asked commanded even that we would treat one another within the church as family as his family God does not demand perfection from you but once you are part of his body of Christ he demands commitment because it does take work to pursue unity and we can try come up with all strategies for evangelism but the tried and proven method is to really be united to love one another as Christ has loved us and we will see people being saved Apparently that's how it works and but praise God we have seen that that's how it works even in our church some of us look at our life groups and thinking I don't have anything in common with these people it's not about whatever what you've got in common it's about how you can love these people to pursue unity and be part of God's eternal plan in bringing redemption and restoration through little old church you and me imperfect as we are and so we must guard our unity church can I encourage you guard the unity because if God sees it as family then we should take it seriously if God says this is his mysterious plan that he's planned all along if you want to be part of that if you want to experience that God has for you take it seriously and guard the unity of the church if you see people gossiping about others in the church, if you see negativity being spread about other church members or even about the leadership, call it out. Guard the unity. You see, the seeds of division that Abner planted ended up being an ultimate breakdown of Israel as a united nation. If we allow seeds of, div of, of um, division to grow, that's what can happen to God's precious church now God can out God can plan his way through it but would we guard the church because we believe what God says about it 
because we believe God's perspective that it is His master plan. As simple, (laughs) as weak, as imperfect as we are, we are part of God's master plan because the true King has come and we get to the privilege of spreading that good news and that telling people that the true King will ultimately come and bring the full restoration we desire. So God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. I ask that you would just speak to us, continue to speak to us. For those of us, God, who you are calling into your great plan, who you are inviting to be part of your eternal plan, which you thought of even before the foundation of this world, to be part of your family, God. We ask that you would give us the grace to respond with faith to take the next step. Give us clarity as to what that next step is to accept your invitation. And for those of us who have maybe been complicit in causing division within within our within your people among your people or even allowed it to happen. God, we just ask that you would turn our eyes toward you that you would help us see just how marvelous your church is your plan for the church that even through imperfect people through small people (laughs) you could accomplish great things and so we ask that you would give us a love for the church and that you would heal any church hurt that we may have had because lord you see that pain You see any church hurt that we have had from the past. And I ask that you would bring healing to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.